Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the Senior Director of the Global Summitry Project. You can find all of the various activities of the Global Summitry Project at our website, globalsummitryproject.com. There you will find uh, the Global Summitry e-journal. You will also find um, entry to the Rising Brixham blog. You will be able to listen to our three podcast streams. That is the Shaking the Global Order, uh, the Summit Dialogue series, and of course the Now series. And finally, you can view our growing list of videos uh, in uh, our Global Summitry YouTube channel. It was my pleasure uh, for uh, the Summit Dialogue series episode 21 to interview uh, Joshua Busby uh, from the University of Texas at Austin. I was um, keen to discuss with him uh, the Leaders Earth Day Summit. The summit was uh, brought together by uh, President Biden and held on April 22nd and 23rd. It included leaders from uh, the Major Economies Forum on Energy and Climate, that is the bringing together of 17 countries responsible for approximately 80% of global emissions and uh, also global GDP. So what we hope to uh, discuss with Josh included, among other things, uh, the commitments that leaders made to the Earth Day Summit, and where commitments were not made, what are the consequences uh, of that? Uh, what can we expect from the Glasgow COP26 meeting in October uh, following uh, another leader summit, this the G20 Leader Summit in Rome? All of this was part of our discussion with Josh and uh, a, a focused look at the, at the question of global emissions and the efforts to keep the average temperature of the Earth to 1.5 degrees. Josh is an Associate Professor of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and a distinguished scholar at the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law, in 2018, Josh joined the Center for Climate and Security as a senior research fellow. Uh, Josh is the author of numerous studies on climate change, national security, and energy policy that have been recently uh, published. So join with me and Josh in the virtual studio to examine the Leaders Earth Day Summit and efforts going forward uh, on climate change. Welcome back to the virtual studio, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be with you again. It's great. So um, uh, I wanted to spend some time with you talking about uh, the Earth uh, Summit, which we saw last week. Um, the two days of the leader summit that occurred. Um, and uh, we saw in, you know, relatively rapid succession, 
that Japan and Canada and Britain and the European Union uh, openly committed to uh, steeper cuts uh, in um, emissions. In, uh, but China, India, and Russia made no uh, emission promises, notwithstanding, of course, as you're well aware that, you know, Biden made the commitment to uh, cut greenhouse gases by 50 or 52 percent below the 2005 levels by the end of the decade. So what do you think the consequences uh, are, Josh, of the fact that uh, none of the big emitters uh, uh, besides the uh, U.S., um, and Europe uh, made any commitments uh, at this at this point. Well, I, w- I would turn it around that the U.S. on some level was uh, late to the party on net zero. Um, okay, and it's coming forward with a more short run commitment, you know, for 2030 mm-hmm. and a statement of intent, but was basically catching up with others like China that had a 2060 net zero announcement that happened last uh, uh, last year. So. So my sense is that, you know, I, I wouldn't expect at a U.S. organized function that the Chinese government would come out with a new commitment. Um, and so that's, uh, I think, interesting um, in and of itself that, you know, that, that they, we wouldn't ex- necessarily expect them to make that kind of commitment at this at this gathering. Um, the other thing that, that's interesting that I think in the lead up that maybe has gotten less news is that the uh, Chinese government did announce their intent to ratify the Kigali Agreement on HFCs, on the short-lived forcers. And so uh, it's an interesting question about whether or not that came about because of the meeting or independent of it. So I still expect, given some of the language about the um, uh, coal phase-out, that the the Chinese government said that they will strictly regulate coal use um, in the coming years. I think depending on the translation, you can read some some into that about whether more is uh, coming down the pike uh, in the future between now and the Glasgow negotiations. So, yeah. yeah. That, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, about whether the, the holding back, in quotation marks, holding back on the part of some, like uh, China, uh, like India, like Russia, and, and others, was really a, a partly, potentially a, a product of the fact that we're looking uh, forward, um, uh, November 1st to November 12th is COP26, and that's the, uh, uh, the Glasgow summit, in which uh, uh, reviews uh, and potentially new commitments on NDCs um, are are potentially going to be made. Do you think part of the reason, as you pointed out, for not uh, for not kind of enhancing commitments was really because we're looking down the road, or they're looking down the road towards new new commitments or enhanced commitments uh, come come the Glasgow summit. I think that's right, I, but it could be wishful thinking on my part. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'd like to see more commitments from the Chinese government, but before then, but I, I'm also not sure that that's necessarily going to emerge. And so then the question is, you know, I would look at this meeting more in terms of is it was it a success in helping Joe Biden achieve his domestic climate commitments? Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, you know, from a, there's a little parochial to think about, but he needed a successful meeting to maybe make it more likely that 
his infrastructure plan, which is essentially his climate plan, can get passed. And on that level, it succeeded. I think that the the uh, the perception of it being a serious effort that was taken seriously by the rest of the world will buoy the chances that his domestic infrastructure plan will get passed um, in a way that people were worried that why do you have a, a international climate meeting before you've got your domestic house in order? And I think from the U.S. perspective, I think the successful meeting made it more likely the U.S. can get its house in order. And what do you, you know, before I wanted to ask you some questions about, you know, the questions of coal and, and China, but but what do you think getting uh, the, the U.S. Um, climate change uh, policies in order, what does that mean as you th- see it and think about it now? Well, I, I think the, the primary challenge that the U.S. faces is always one of having sufficient votes for regulation and that is always going to be difficult. Uh, but there's more impetus at this moment, as we've seen with the pandemic, to invest and spend on, on, in the countries on the country's needs. And that will include things like large-scale infrastructure on charging stations uh, and uh, other commitments to maybe procure electric vehicles for the federal fleet. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a host of other investments uh, and incentives for private sector take up of EVs by the individual consumers. And so I expect that uh, that alongside a clean electricity standard may be embedded in this wider infrastructure plan. And uh, and that alongside international spending, which I suspect will also be bundled in this effort, could set the stage for both uh, ideally transformational change in our energy system domestically, but as well as our ability to uh, fulfill our uh, climate finance commitments internationally. Okay, and I'll touch on that maybe by way of a question a little later, uh, but it, it, it on the financing side... I, I take it, you know, uh, one of the really important elements of the climate change initiative on the part of this administration is really the rolling back uh, of uh, uh, efforts by the uh, former Trump administration to loosen those standards. I saw just uh, within the last uh, several days, there was uh, a decision to allow California to continue uh, its exam- its um, exemption from from the sta- from the from the national standard, allowing them to have higher standard. And I presume, from your perspective, that's an important that's an important uh, step uh, on the part of this administration. Yeah, if we can't get a higher national standard on um, either cafe standards mm-hmm. or um, uh, electric vehicles, that allowing California and other states like California who have um, electric vehicle mandates or uh, zero carbon uh, vehicle mandates, their ability to set their own standards is an important uh, uh, step forward. And so I'm hopeful that uh you know, maybe we'll have a federal emergence of a, of a policy at some point to encourage, um, you know, all new vehicle sales after a certain date have to be electric vehicles. But short of that, allowing um, that to happen at the state level is is really necessary. So from my understanding, and I may be wrong here, that part, part of this uh, 
works in part because California has such a dramatic impact on um, you know, vehicles sold and vehicle production that in a way that then ends up, you know, creating the standard because um, the automobile companies aren't into the business of different standards for different markets. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think there are something like 10 other states that, uh, and important ones like New York, that are likely to be following California's lead. And we already have important manufacturers like GM that are saying that, you know, after a certain date, all new vehicles will be electric. And so we can see the future emerging, but we've got a ways to go to get there, you know, thinking about, you know, the ease and convenience of recharging your vehicle. I have a Chevy Bolt which I love is a terrific vehicle. But if I want to do inner city travel, it is not really suitable for that purpose um, because we just don't have the charging infrastructure there. Um, and other countries are, you know, leaps and uh, miles ahead of us uh, in Europe and in, in, in China already. And so, you know, from a competitive standpoint, you know, in terms of who's going to be reaping the benefits of selling these kinds of products internationally, you know, other countries are far out ahead. And I think the the um, the framing of the summit uh, has helped diminish the resistance in the U.S. to think to thinking about environment and economy as opposed um, propositions. That now we're seeing that environmental protection is the route to economic development, or at least that's the framing. And it's hearkening back to the, the, the idea that was not yet ripe when Al Gore made those kinds of associations that we can have our, have our economic growth and environmental protection. Uh, I think the time is ripe now. There's more, more people buying into that. And we can see the future with the technologies that are already available to us with, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, cost of renewables is now competitive or cheaper than uh, fossil fuels and electric vehicles. If we bring the price down and get the infrastructure in shape, is is the you know we can see that the um, uh, internal combustion engine uh, days are are numbered, uh, and so we need to look to the next generation technology rather than uh, last century's technology. Well, in that regard, I noted that uh, John Kerry, he's of course the United States Special uh, Presidential Envoy for Climate said at the summit uh, that changes in the marketplace um, were happening so quickly that he believed that the United States would not just meet, but in fact could surpass uh, the new goal, the new goal that President Biden issued at the summit, which was the 50% reduction, right, Um, against um, uh, U.S. uh, uh, emissions, U.S. emissions. Um, do you buy that argument uh, of of the marketplace in effect um, providing that that capacity? There, there's a, some um, ambiguity, or uh, you know, the, 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 he's gotten this question several times because you know, on some level, um, what do you need policy for if the market's going to deliver it anyway, sure. right? Uh, and I don't think the market will deliver it anyway without a policy signal. The problem is, is that there's um, the credibility of the U.S. policy signal is subject to uh, reversals at the federal level because, you know, the Democrats might not control Congress. 
uh, in tw after 2022, and they might not control the presidency after 2024. And so I think we have a limited window to pass some new legislation, which would set a direct di direction that we're already headed in with the increased competitiveness of renewables and the emergence of electric vehicles, and that it might lock in uh, the market signal. I'm not sure if it'll do so by 2023 or by 2025, but I, I you know, if we if we can get a few years of sustained policy under our belt, I think we'll get more market lock in to the emergent you know new standard, which will be electric vehicles, uh, zero carbon electricity, and then the other stuff may yield uh, fruit in time as we get you know uh, displacement of the hard to decarbonize sectors like industry. So I, I think you know. Um, there's some uh, overselling of the role that the market will have. Policy is going to be integral for the next five to 10 years. But after that, I think the market will you know, settle on a, a new trajectory. The, cha the challenge is, will the U.S. policy signal be consistent long enough to push the market to that new kind of equilibrium, like QWERTY solution, like which will be you know, the standard will be everybody's going to have an electric vehicle and all the uh, electricity sources will be carbon free. Well, I, and I wonder in that regard whether or not how much damage uh, the Trump administration years uh, brings uh, to U.S. leadership, um, because you, you're hinting at, you know, the concern in the United States, but it could be much broader uh, that, you know, yeah, it's great that the Biden administration is proposing some of the things, may even uh, obtain legislative um, uh, changes, legislative approval, but nevertheless, people are going, yeah, but how long are they there and how long will the kind of full court press of climate change concerns uh, be there if the Republicans, for instance, take back um, uh, some of the Congress or both houses, and or uh, a Republican uh, not committed to climate change uh, takes over in 2024. I think those are concerns, and then the you just can't live your life like will act like that's an impediment to uh, the correct course of behavior. Because if you act like that, it make it more likely it'll be so. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the the international you know, supporters of climate action think if we do more now, it's more likely that the U.S. will continue to stay on this trajectory um, because it will reinforce either Biden's ability to do things domestically or he or his successor on the Democratic side will get reelected or the Republicans maybe eventually will get religion that this is a losing issue for us and we need to um, uh, have a, a, a conversion and come up with credible ideas of our own. And so I think the the, you know, everybody recognizes that the U.S. climate commitment might be ephemeral, but let's work like hell in the meantime to make it not. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me turn to a, a related uh, matter. Um, and that is um, uh, a recent uh, issued U.N. report um, uh, on the importance of reducing uh, emissions of methane. And uh, the main component, that's the main component of, of natural gas, right? And, uh, and that they're in, eff in effect saying this is far more important than we've 
than we kind of considered in the past. That is the issue of methane emissions because they're so much more uh, potent uh, than carbon, uh, carbon dioxide, notwithstanding that they don't stay in the atmosphere uh, nearly as long as carbon dioxide. Um, uh, and, but in that regard, of course, the concern with methane really singles out the fossil fuel industry as holding, you know, the greatest possibility of, of reducing methane, right? And, and the question is, you know, uh, unless there's a significant deployment of unproven technologies, which would be capable of pulling greenhouse gases out of the air, expanding the use of natural gas um, is incompatible with kind of the main target. And yet, you know, at the same time, you're, you're calling for the reduction in coal use. So mm -hmm. how, how do, how, you know, how do we line this up, right? Can, can we get at the uh, reduction in methane without causing difficulties in terms of, uh, uh, of, of uh, fuel? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point. I mean, uh, we, for a long time talked about methane or natural gas as a bridge fuel right. uh, while we're waiting for renewables to mature. Renewables are now mature, but you know there's intermittency. The sun doesn't always shine, wind doesn't always blow. But as we saw in the Texas freeze of late, which I suffered along with my colleagues, friends and colleagues <laughs> here in Texas, uh, natural gas wasn't reliable during the freeze. And it, we think of it as firm baseload power and it wasn't. Ah, and so okay. that realization, coupled with the fact that the industry has resisted regulation on methane leakage and flaring, I think has diminished its attractiveness, even to people who are modestly supportive, because um, we're worried about, uh, you know, uh, lock into a fossil fuel trajectory alongside technologies that haven't emerged uh, at a cost competitive level for carbon capture. And so I think the time is running out for the industry to demonstrate its bona fides to be a reliable bridge fuel. Um, and so that's going to start with uh, accepting of regulation on methane leakage, accepting of mm -hmm. uh, rules to limit flaring. And um, in, I think there's, you know, at least among some folks, modest indulgement of the need to invest in carbon capture and removal technologies, modest to significant amounts. But, you know, at a certain point, um, uh, there's, you know, movements afoot uh, all across the country to limit, you know, increased deployment of natural gas in, say, uh, home uh, for heating or for cooking. And I think that that's only going to accelerate. And so okay. um, uh, natural gas has a lot of work to do if it wants to stay in the game for some period of time. And, uh, and, and the tides are turning against it, uh, but we still have to defeat, um, defeat it may not be quite the right word, but we have to move away from coal and- right what coal, what natural gas has done over the last decade or so is diminish the, alongside renewables has diminished the, um, the market competitiveness of coal. Uh, and so that trajectory has to continue. So natural gas still has a few more years uh, of support, at least in the United States uh, behind it, but uh, there'll be a reckoning sooner rather than later if methane leakage flaring and uh, in carbon sequestration um, or aren't, aren't, aren't dealt with. 
Right. And I take it that we're really talking uh, about the issue at the wellhead, that a lot of the issue is right there uh, in terms of uh, leakage and yeah. in terms of flaring right right at, in those circumstances. And, pipel- and pipelines. And uh, the pipeline. other issue, I think, is, you know, what does this mean for U.S. natural gas exports or, ex- you know, trying to encourage this to be a bridge fuel in other places to displace mm-hmm. coal? And, uh, you know, there were efforts by the Biden administration to discourage Japanese support for natural gas of late, which I don't fully understand if that was a we want to pursue a low carbon trajectory or we want to pursue a U.S. led natural gas trajectory. <laughs> and so I don't know. I don't exactly know if those debates have been settled yet. And uh, obviously, coal is entrenched in other places in a way that it's not in the U.S. or Europe anymore. Right. And, right. and so um, but I'm also mindful that, you know, say in India, displacing coal with imported U.S. natural gas is probably from an energy security standpoint, not what not desirable by the by India, and so it's a bit of a fantasy to imagine that countries are just going to um, come uh, calling for U.S. natural gas. I, I think that having locally derived solar resources that um, mm-hmm. don't compromise uh, their energy security, at least in the case of India, is a more likely pathway. But the kinds of technologies that they're going to need to make that viable are energy storage and uh you know other kinds of battery technology battery technologies exactly. so yeah, yeah. Um, there's room for the u.s to sell stuff i'm just not sure how much natural gas sold by americans to people internationally is going to be it's as playing profitable. a part yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah the trump administration wanted that to be the story but um i i, I think natural gas is um uh, it's got some some real work to do to demonstrate that it can be part of the medium term strategy for okay. decarbonization. So so let's turn uh, to coal, as as you mentioned, and I think I may have mentioned as well, uh, that China indicated President Xi in his address at the Earth Summit indicated that it would strictly limit increasing coal consumption in the next five years and then phase down in the following five years, so that's ten years, ten years out, right? Uh, while the statement seemed to, to, to be helpful, uh, you know, we're also aware in the recent history of of coal, coal use, and coal financing uh, that uh, China has not often, not often, has not at different times really uh, met those kinds of commitments. That is, there, you know, there has been. Um, the you know the district level and the local level production and because coal is such a central part of, in some provinces in China of employment that notwithstanding the desire on the part of the national government to reduce coal that's not always uh, been the case and so you know uh, I guess the question is uh, that you know we may notwithstanding the statement by uh, Xi Jinping we may not be we may not see this uh in 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 the near in the near term what's your your thinking on china's commitment to coal um reduction i mean this uh 
center, you know, province uh, dynamic is familiar going back to Elizabeth Economy's River Runs Black, you know, right. we've seen this story before, but we also know like in the lead up or to the Olympics that when the central government decides to get serious about something, it can do things that other governments generally have difficulty doing. And, and in some ways, it, you know, uh, so they'll shut down low performing uh, facilities. I think that the, the, Finance model of uh, of both national support for coal burning power plants and overseas support for coal finance that could run out at a certain point if the government sees that it has more to gain either uh, reputationally from being a climate leader and using this as a cudgel against the United States. Although I, I I'm not sure how important a driver that would be, independent of the sense that there's just excess capacity. And there's a lot of wasted resources in building plants that hardly ever run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I think the dynamics may be changing, but I might want them to be changing. And so, uh, you know, both domestically and internationally. And the interesting question is, to what extent does international opinion register in Chinese decision making? And you know, it's the same kinds of questions that were asked about the like the Bush administration when it was doing things like, you know, the lead up to Iraq that uh, the rest of the world didn't like. And I, I feel like in the context of China's decision on 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 climate, the fact that the the that the U.S. is in a position to um, use this issue perhaps as a strategic wedge might mean that both countries race to the top rather than race to the bottom. And that would be a salutary result for climate protection if it shows up in China's increased willingness to take on its domestic interests and say, we're not building as many coal plants. We don't need them. And we're not going to finance coal plants. Uh, I would like them to move in that direction uh, uh, in the same way that you know Korea and Japan have done on external finance um, or uh, and 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 to do that, you know, more thoroughly at home as well. But uh, but I think the jury's still out. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, it is true that Korea now has committed not to finance um, external uh, coal-fired plants. But you know, that's like really recent, and it's not as if you know we haven't had people insisting that this is a really uh, bad policy on the part of the Korean government. Uh, to finance coal-fired facilities uh, abroad, not in Korea itself. So, um, one interesting thing is, you know, I think that there needs to be. Fun- like, I just had an essay on uh, a just transition away from coal in India, where we made a, a call for more resources to the coal sector to help uh, with early coal phase out. And so I, I'm a little worried that some of the calls for supporting the coal sector for shutting down could get bound up with, you know, people saying no more money for coal, but if the purpose is for coal phase out, do you make an exception? Cause you're basically trying to support just transition for workers who are displaced. I, I think that there's a way to finesse it, but there's also a way that it could be game to extend the life of coal rather than actually truly used for the purposes of early plant retirement or site redevelopment or uh, just transition support for workers. And so I, I think, in, and there's a, a case to be made, for example, in the Indian context, if you need flexible base power to the extent that you think uh, a coal-fired power plant that uh, might serve like 
in that capacity to run at some times of the year when you have lower wind or lower solar availability, it, it doesn't run very often, but it runs when you need it, that that, that could be okay. And so we need to have a, a strategy on coal in some places as they're making the transition to clean energy and while battery technology matures so that from an air pollution and climate protection standpoint, they don't run all that often, but they run when you need it. That's probably the right strategy. That's a little bit uh, further afield from the you know, new coal plant construction and uh, uh, either at home or internationally, but should be part of the kind of uh, political calculus as we're thinking about moving away from coal um, from an energy security and uh, energy systems uh, perspective. Yeah, and that that leads me to kind of the final question on this coal issue. How much do we have to be concerned? You know, in the rising kind of competition between U.S. and China, everybody's been talking about the, re, you know, the return of geopolitics in in uh, in Asia, certainly, but more broadly. But the concern that the you know Chinese government may end up considering coal a national security issue. Um, going into at least the the midterm, right into the mid range period, in the sense that you know they've got lots of it, and if there was concern about supply, that this would be a strategy that the Chinese might uh, employ, notwithstanding uh, the concerns about climate change. I, I guess it you know the, the air pollution issue in their own recent experience with that suggests that that's a got limited purchase on. You know, that the, and that they have uh, ample domestic um, solar and wind resources so that there are other options that are economically attractive and that could provide their energy security needs. So I'm not sure if they need coal from an energy security perspective to, sh- I mean, there are regionally concentrations and, and you can imagine that there are local vested interests in parts of the country in the interior where that's likely, you know, going to remain a, a, a challenging issue for them. But I don't know if from a national security standpoint, if it's going to drive decision-making and if they're worried about having, you know, repeated the kind of airpocalypse type scenarios of kind of 2013, 2014, then, right. you know, the, you know, there's studies on India today uh, show that the average person in Delhi loses nine years off their life expectancy because, because of pollution. pollution. Uh, yeah. large at the country level, it's five years. So that was, that was, China's recent history, right? And they've escaped that through efforts to improve their quality in major cities. But it, you know, the, those those results might diminish over time, and the, the air quality still isn't all that good. So I I think that, and they also recognize the, I mean, they already know the market opportunities of exporting solar and other technology internationally. So I I think that the um, installing more of it domestically, as they have done in recent years, if they can also bring down the price of batteries, they'll just be in a position to, you know, both deploy that for domestic purposes and sell that internationally. And I I, I feel like that could work itself out. It's more the regional distributional issues of vested interests in pockets of the country that don't want to move in that direction. And how do you overcome them? Mm -hmm. Do you do it by fiat? Do you incentivize them to move away from it? Um, what, however it's done, uh, I, I, I think that they can see their way around it if they, if they are committed to it. Okay, fair enough. Um, also, um, you know, again, back to the, to the summit, 
the Biden administration also promised to double its contribution to developing countries, right, mm -hmm. to address climate uh, change uh, at, to an estimated $5.7 billion by 2024. But like many of the promises, of course, that requires congressional approval. Uh, and even that level would only uh, match what many other uh, country, rich countries have been providing already. So many experts suggest that the administration's uh, finance promises are woefully inadequate, in fact, mm -hmm. not ambitious, not nearly ambitious enough. Uh, can do you think that the Biden administration can overcome some of the Republican opposition to the particularly to these financing measures, these uh, promises of commitment to developing countries? Yes and, and no. I think that the <laughs> commitment itself is modest, but more realistic than anything greater and expansive than that. So it's a doubling by 2024. I don't think it's an annual, you know, I don't think it'll be 5.7 a year. I think the no. period um, was uh 2.8 in the 2013-2016 period so a doubling would be you know over some multiple year period but it would be a significant uh increase the u.s has more appetite for spending at the moment and so mm -hmm. i think in the same way that funding for the global fund i believe was um added onto the pandemic relief bill of late that you could imagine that international finance for adaptation if the infrastructure bill goes through that this would just be a rounding error you know it's a small amount of money in a wider stream of spending and if that can be packaged as part of it uh that would be that would be helpful and then there has to be more calls for crowding in of other sources of finance in the same way that the you know, the pledge um, at uh, Copenhagen and at Paris was to mobilize up to $100 billion per year in public and private funding. It wasn't all ODA. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, the U.S. needs to be able to pass some modest amount of ODA or overseas development assistance um, as part of a credible package. But then, you know, the real volume of money is going to come from other sources. Like, the World Bank is committed to spend, I don't know, something like a third of its resources on climate-related finance. All of the international development banks should be in that same mode of increasing the share of climate finance. And then, you know, there are all of these super-empowered individuals with billions at their disposal that w should um, be in a position to support efforts, whether it's Bezos or Gates or others. I see. So, and yeah. Uh, you know, through mission innovation and other platforms of spending, Elon Musk. Uh, the challenge, I think, for developing countries is absorptive capacity as well. Like, how do you get a pulse of finance to support local ad adaptation? And I'm not all exactly convinced that the vehicles that we have, like the Green Climate Fund, in terms of stories that I read about their management, suggest real challenges for them in doing this at scale. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me a PEPFAR-like bilateral program coupled with, you know, if, if the GCF were to be run as well as like the uh, global climate, the global, the, the global fund for AIDS, TB, and malaria, I'd have diff I'd have fewer qualms about using that as a vehicle for U S resources. But the fact that it doesn't have that reputation, at least as yet, I mean, maybe it gets some of the money, but um, there may be other vehicles. Maybe it's the uh, global environment facility. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's through the bank. Uh, uh, maybe it's through other special financing mechanisms. Um, but other, or it could be like bilateral programming because PEPFAR has done yeoman's work in 
saving the lives of millions um, by putting them on life-saving uh, antiretroviral therapy. Climate is lends itself less to you know technology-specific interventions like that, but a large pulse of resources that the U.S. directed bilaterally by, might be more politically acceptable. Do you think even financing through the MD, the MDBs more broadly, the the multilateral development banks, as a way of pushing out uh, more opportunity for uh, for greening, uh, you know, in developing countries? Is I mean, well, a, these institutions are there. They don't. You know, all you got to do is put the money in. Yeah. Well, you know, I cut my teeth writing about debt relief and the Jubilee mm-hmm. 2000 campaign um, two decades ago. And uh, we're in a similar moment of, of debt overhang and there's a need for debt relief. But, you know, maybe there's broader public purposes of the fiscal space that would be given by debt relief to then channel it for particular purposes, including resilience programming in uh, in developing countries around the world. And so I think there's a lot that we can be done through the, uh, both through the uh, bank, the various multilateral uh, banks, but also from major lenders, including China. So a major restructuring of debt uh, in exchange for the fiscal space to invest in, in, uh, in climate protection and mm-hmm. climate mitigation is probably what's needed. Uh, and then you know, targeted approach, you know, we called for specific support for India on a just transition away from coal. I think that there are, you know, similar calls, both on justice and pragmatic grounds for, say, low-lying island countries in terms of the preparations they need to to take to um, avoid the worst consequences of climate change, that there are, there are specific interventions uh, or for particular geographies that um, ought to be pursued. One final question, turning a little bit more to, um, you know, the um, uh, COP26 and the Glasgow Summit, There's a, there was a recent report out from uh, Swiss Re, which is a major reinsurance uh, bank, uh, and it um, indicated that, you know, failure to kind of meet the 1.5 uh, uh, degree uh, Celsius target uh, that, you know, the, the world economy will suffer something like $23 trillion in losses, right, by mid-century, by 2050, uh, from disasters, from the spread of disease and other uh, consequences of, of, you know, rising uh, temperature, temperature. Do you think this report, but more generally a wider kind of reporting on the consequences, on the damages done by not achieving the result may have some impact on, you know, the commitments and the willingness on the part of the uh, um, multilateral system uh, to ramp up uh, their commitments, because that's kind of what Glasgow is all about which is ramping up commitments uh, for um, uh, the NDCs, the, uh, the nationally determined commitments of the various countries. Is that a real prospect or are we still not there yet? So I don't think any individual reporter is going to convince us to do the, the hard work, but right. it's right. the confluence of information that suggests that the impacts are likely to be ter- terrible if we do nothing. Um, and the fact that there are great opportunities in the clean energy transition for countries to do very well by you know deploying next generation technology uh, 
that they'll be able to, you know, if all if all we've done is invested in you know, uh, improvements in clean energy and we end up with uh, less polluted you know, airways and uh, healthier people, uh, that would be such a tragic result, I know. Um, but beyond that, uh, we're likely to have uh, major industries that will be the important employers and export uh, sources of revenue for the future. And so the threat of climate change and the impacts are driving concern, but the opportunities of the clean energy transition are giving added impetus. And we have a moment, maybe an 18 month window for as long as the Biden administration controls the house um, <laughs> to um, you know, get back on the virtuous circle that was intended of the Paris Agreement uh, and mm -hmm. to have this re self-reinforcing dynamic where we're racing towards a common objective. We have a limited window with the wind at our back, but you know, we may end up with changing trajectories in, in the US that then sets us back in the way that we experienced in the Trump administration. And uh, that maybe puts the US role too centrally, given that you know, the US is only responsible for 15% of emissions and China is now responsible for 27 to 30%. Mm -hmm. But uh, I do think that the absence of US um, you know, impetus behind this meant that you know, there was political cover for the more the Australias and Brazils of this world to do to reverse policies, and there was little that China needed to do other than show up and say we're still part of the 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 you know, and we're going to keep you know deploying solar and wind at home, even mm -hmm. if they were continuing to invest in coal domestically and internationally. Well, the Biden administration has the, you know, this as one of their signature issues. We've got 18 months to get the uh, global commitment moving back in the right direction. And hopefully, you know, the next set of meetings will build on that with both more commitment, but more experience that this is easier to do than we thought. Now, the targets, you know, whether we get to you know, 50 to 52% by 2030 or get mm -hmm. to net zero by 20 or 50 or 2060. But some of those <clears> targets, I'm, I'm less hung up on that, of getting us moving in the right direction and as fast as we possibly can. And then, you know, hopefully we meet those targets or exceed them. But we have had for the longest time, the trouble of getting, you know, stars aligned for all of us collectively as a planet moving in the right direction. So I'm hopeful that's uh, what's going to happen now. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Josh, to uh, talk to us about uh, climate change uh, efforts, uh, both the Earth Summit that just took place and then, of course, looking towards COP26 uh, in Glasgow. Really, really appreciate your insights. Okay. Glad to uh, take part in uh, any time.